Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. Well, good morning, church family. Throughout the week, Keith and I, we were discussing which, which passage in Acts he'd like to preach on next month and sort of where things are going to line up. Sometimes it's a little hard to predict, but we're both pretty excited about it. And he sent me a text at the end of it, which I think rings really, really true. He wrote to me, every passage in Acts is a great passage. And it, it, just, it just seems that way. Everything we take on, there's, just, there's so much richness in it. So it's a pleasure. So then I think we can sort of expect, hey, I don't need to wear this. We can sort of expect because of that, that we're going to hit on another good one this morning. I think as we've seen countless times as we were journeying through Matthew, we're going to find that these words, which were written by Luke through the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago, that they meet us exactly where we're at, and they're the things that we need to hear right now. So let me remind you of the scene. It's a, it's a famous scene we've been talking about. Another big holiday has come to Jerusalem. Fifty days after the Passover, there's Pentecost. And this is the Jewish festival of giving God thanks for the first of the harvest. Jerusalem itself is packed with pilgrims from all over the world, and the population of the city sometimes grows to ten times its normal size. And in the middle of this, all this activity, probably in the temple plaza, on the temple mount itself, there's a big scene. Because Jesus had, has poured out his Holy, Holy Spirit onto the disciples, and the 120 of his disciples gathered near the temple, they're overcome. And they begin to call out God's praises in all sorts of different languages. This scene catches everyone's attention. And then Peter takes the opportunity to stand up and to explain to everyone in the crowd exactly what is happening. And as we've worked through the past couple of weeks, Peter preaches a brilliant sermon on the Lordship of Jesus and how the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is direct evidence and could only happen if Jesus is indeed who he said he was, if he is indeed at the right hand of God. And I think what happens next is one of the great thrills of Christian history. The, the ball gets rolling at a pretty quick pace. Peter calls on the people to repent of rejecting Jesus and then be baptized into the kingdom. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want you just to imagine for a moment if your church, in the period of an afternoon, went from 120 members to 3,000. Can you just imagine how every single one of those 120 members were suddenly a pastor, were suddenly a teacher? Everyone had to take leadership because this was a big, young church. And if you're one of those 120, what in the world do you do next? Where do you start? How do you start to lay the groundwork? And this is great. One of my favorite passages. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the birth of the church. This is what it looks like to start from scratch. This is God showing us exactly what are the essentials of what we're doing here. And by extension, what are we doing here that's non-essential? There are four things which mark their new Christian lives. And Luke makes it perfectly clear. These aren't just four things they did. They were devoted to these things. They were passionately committed to this new lifestyle. They've repented. They've turned from their old lifestyle. And here's the four things they're all about. Number one, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And this was Jesus' plan from the start. We talked about, as we were going through Matthew, like, why is it that Jesus is so focused on the 12? And that to the point where he only explains what his parables, what his teachings mean to his disciples in private. Jesus' plan from the start was to teach the 12 so that the 12 could teach thousands. The apostles, having, deli- having lived so close to Jesus day to day, and now being filled with the Holy Spirit, the apostles teach with Jesus' authority. We're going to meet the character Paul in a little while. Paul is kind of a late uh, addition to the apostles. But look what he has to say about his own authority. I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 14. He wrote this to the Corinthian church. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. What Paul is saying is, okay, Corinthians, if you think you're really connected to God, if you think you're really mature spiritual people, you should recognize that my commands come from Jesus. And if you don't recognize that, you're not a spiritual person is the implication. He's pretty blunt. Paul is typically pretty blunt. In a letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul describes that the prophets and apostles are the foundation of God's new household, the church. Later in that letter, he writes that the prophets and apostles by the Spirit have the clearest knowledge of the Messiah. So that is the, our relationship with the apostles as well. Our relationship with the apostles is they are the clearest, most intimate teachers of the person of Jesus. The letters at the back half of our New Testament are written with the full authority of Jesus, and they're no way less than the Gospels. They are the commands of Jesus. Does that make sense? So they were devoted first to the apostles' teaching, which is the core of their new Christian life. The apostles teach the centrality of Jesus, and their teaching then prepares their community to live out their lives as Christians. Jesus is center. What does that mean? How do I live? How do I respond? What I find so cool about that is, that is that's actually been the pattern of our church over the past little while, and this wasn't planned necessarily, but we focused on Matthew first to learn the centrality of Jesus, to learn who Jesus is. And now we're diving into Acts, which is so much about, well, now church, how do we respond? 
We have the Spirit of God with us. How do we respond? How do we live according to everything that we've learned? Jesus said at the end of Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so that was what the beginning of the church looked like. These 120 had the task of teaching thousands of new believers how to observe Jesus' commands in day-to-day life. And if you want to know what their teaching looks like, what it sounds like, we've got lots of their letters in the New Testament. It's really a blessing. But so much of that teaching resembles Peter's sermon. They taught from the scriptures, and the only scriptures they had were the Old Testament. They preached the full gospel from the Old Testament. They centered every, all of their teaching on to Jesus, and they taught people how to live according to that teaching. So I think you get it. Number one, this brand new baby church, they were devoted to the apostles' teachings because they teach with the authority of Jesus. Number two, they were devoted to the fellowship. And the word fellowship simply means something like sharing life. It means being together in a meaningful way. And in fact, the word here was commonly used and applied to marriage. It was meant to be a picture, this word for fellowship, a picture of life together, a shared life. So what Luke is telling us is that in the, at the very start, this new church, they simply lived life together. Three, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. They shared meals together. They were together outside of the regular worship hours, and they were blessing each other and hosting each other with hospitality. And scholars believe that it's actually quite likely that the beginning of the communion ceremony, as we know it, it actually came from these shared meals. It came from the early church devoting themselves to sharing meals with each other. They they had ordinary meals, ordinary suppers, ordinary lunches. And just as Jesus instructed, when they were gathered as a group of Christians, they broke the bread in honor, in memory of his sacrifice. It's a beautiful picture of the beginning of communion. They were becoming more connected with each other as they were enjoying communion with God. And I think we have to admit that there's something about standing in pews, right? All facing forward, which kind of misses the community aspect of communion. Because communion does not and never did represent one person connecting with God. It was always a symbol of a community of people connected with God in communion with Jesus together. And four, they were devoted to the prayers. One of the key components to Christian life was praying together. The church discerns God's will together through prayer. One of the scholars I was reading, a man named Daryl Bach, he wrote this, and I don't normally include full quotations, but this one was really, really good. He wrote, a community at prayer is something Luke emphasizes about community life. 
It seeks God's direction and is dependent upon God because God's family of people do not work by feelings or intuition, but by actively submitting themselves to the Lord's direction. God's people do not work by feelings or intuition, but by actively submitting themselves to the Lord's direction through prayer. What he's saying is the community seeking God in prayer, it's an act of the community submitting itself to the will of God. And this is a way of overcoming the cascade of feelings and opinions, which you can only imagine that big brand new church had. You had 3,000 people from all over the world who suddenly needed to get along. How did they ever get along? This is how they did it. Together, they sought God's will. Together, they sought to obey God through prayer. We do not form our church from our feelings and our opinions. We are formed by surrendering to the Lord together. It's a little interesting. You might wonder in this passage, why is prayers in plural? They, they um, committed themselves to the prayers. Sounds a little weird to us, but that's probably because the early church's life included all of the set traditional prayers of the Jewish faith. They were continued they were committed to continuing to pray the prayers of their fathers. You have to remember this new church was made up entirely of Jews. They were all practicing Jews. They were all religious Jews and and they continued their faith. So the dynamic here isn't that, oh, we're Christians now. Let's give up on all these Jewish rituals and come up with new ones. They are truly Jews who have found their Messiah Their new belief in the Messiah has not replaced their faith. It has confirmed it. It has made it perfectly legitimate. So then what was the result of this new community-focused, Jesus-centered life? And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Everyone, every soul was filled with the awe of God. And awe in this case, it's actually a pretty gentle way to translate this passage. Biblical awe, it always rests perfectly uncomfortably between amazement and fear. When you take amazement and you you take fear and you smush them together, you get the biblical sense of awe. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And why in this passage are they so filled with awe? It's because the Holy Spirit is doing signs and wonders through the apostles. It is the Holy Spirit performing the signs and wonders, but it's, it's, he is doing it through the apostles. And this is just as Joel promised. If you remember when Peter was quoting the prophecies from Joel, he promised that wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below would follow the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I think just like any of us, when we encounter the power of God, we're overwhelmed. And this early church was overwhelmed. They were amazed and they were afraid all at the same time. It's that sort of scenario where the power and the majesty of God is so apparent, you have to fall on your face in worship. 
All through Matthew, Jesus' miracles were always a sign of the kingdom. God's reign had come, and the power expressed through Jesus was evidence that God's reign is on earth. And the apostles' miracles continued that same message. They were the kingdom of God at work in the earth. Luke was going to have lots to say about all the signs and wonders that were happening at the time all throughout Acts, so we don't need to get into the specifics yet. We'll get there. 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So you can just... Look at this one, chew on it for a little while. And, and you know, I can already imagine the lunch conversation now, right? Sitting there, look across the table and go, well, Martha, we got to find a new church. Pastors turned communist. (laughs) We laugh about it, but honestly, when you read this passage, how many of you think of communism? Show of hands. Yeah, there's a good smattering of us. It's in there. So I'm going to unpack that just a little bit, right? There's a little bit of baggage attached to some of these ideas. Let's just be clear. 20th century communism, which is what we all have in mind, that involved the mandatory redistribution of property by the government. You had no say, and if you thought you had a say, you'd probably end up in a gulag. Is that what Luke is describing here? No. Like, it's readily apparent. What's going on here is probably something you've seen before, and it's probably something you've even been a part of. People are voluntarily providing for each other's material needs. These people are willing to do this out of joy. It is totally voluntary, which Luke actually is going to make explicit in chapter 5. And you just have to take a step back and sort of think about it. But When we send money as a church to organizations like The Zone or YFBC, or when we decide we're going to support some of the Lord's workers like Norm, this is exactly what we're doing. We are redistributing our possessions in order to bless others, and we do it voluntarily out of joy. We are voluntarily giving up some of our property to meet someone's material needs for the Lord's glory. So if you've ever helped someone who is really in need... Through the church, or if you've done that personally, you have put this principle into practice. Nobody forced you, and it brought you joy in turn. And the person you were helping didn't stand back, point, and yell, commie. That wasn't what was going on. It was an act and an expression of joy. What Luke is telling us is that in the early years of the church, this was a common thing. There was such a huge gap between the rich and the poor in in the Roman world that this kind of generosity generosity was life-changing. It was gracious and it was good. And it set the Christian community apart. It's so interesting. You know, Moses taught that if Israel would obey the Torah, there would be no poor among them. And I think there's a parable of Jesus which sort of expresses this way of living perfectly. Jesus said this, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain in my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all these things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Generosity is part of the bedrock of the church. Caring for the needs of our community believers is a form of richness toward God. As Jesus just like sharply explained, storing things for ourselves does us no good. And when we repent, turn to follow Jesus' way of living, one of the attitudes we certainly need to repent of is this temptation to hoard things for ourselves. And that doesn't necessarily mean you surrender all your property. That means that when you identify a need, you respond. The issue is that in our culture, it's, it's strong, loud, and clear. We believe that we have earned whatever we have. But the scriptures tell us, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And that's why hoarding to ourselves is a way of being cheap toward God because it's his stuff anyway. We're kids who won't share the toys. So as part of this new life together, the new church cared for each other and they made sure no one went hungry. They were generous with each other and compassionate. And this isn't such a foreign thought. This is something that our church does to this day. We meet the needs as we see them. It's not communists, okay? Well, that's the last time I'll mention that. <laughs> Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They met in the temple day by day. Again, this is a very Jewish practice. They were regularly meeting to join the regular liturgical Jewish worship at the temple. And it seems that after worshiping there in the temple plaza, they would all disperse into their homes and divide themselves up and share meals together. Like the Fospa Club. Like Club. It's almost like that was on purpose, wasn't it? <laughs> Luke says that they were breaking bread, just as Jesus instructed. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So they rejoiced in these meals, they shared together, they were generous, they had glad hearts. You can see the picture Luke is painting for us. And I think that the seniors that are here, or the seniors that may be watching online, I think you have a pretty good idea of the kind of meal that Luke is describing. How much do you long for those Sunday afternoon meals with rooms full of family and friends, whole basements full of people? I used to be there when I was a kid too at my grandma's place. How much do you miss that laughter and that fellowship? How much do you miss the way that people had the time to find simple joy in each other? 
You missed that. You loved it. You enjoyed it because shared meals among Christians is holy. God designed that practice to be a holy part of his church. And any memories or longing you have for that are holy memories. My generation, we are clearly not starved for food, but we are desperately starved of fellowship. Many of us have never experienced what it's like to share a meal like that, ever. And I would love it. I would love it. If when these restrictions and this pandemic is dead and buried, if, if our older generation could teach us to have FOSPA again, we could enjoy life together again. This is a community which was marked by praising God. And Luke tells us that the surrounding culture favored them. The surrounding culture held nothing against them. They looked at this group of generous and joyful people and they were counted as the best among them. Sometimes we think that when the culture around us is against us, that we must be especially faithful. I'd like to suggest that it's probably a sign that we're not living the community life that we were called to live. A healthy Christian community reaches God in praise and then reaches out to the neighbor in generosity and in love. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And there it is. You you have your recipe for success. There is God's vision for the church broken down to its very simplest elements. And it's probably not exactly what you expected. Teaching, fellowship, life together, sharing meals, communal prayer. That rounds out the Christian life. Ron was right to hope that there are squares in the basement. That is, that is <laughs> that's totally right. That's what we're here to do. It's weird. I, I didn't plan it this way. You, you all know I'm preaching a series. And how this timing works where now on the Sunday where things are starting to open up a little bit, we land right here on this topic of Christian community. I didn't plan it, but I thank God for it. Because over the past few weeks, I've had a number of conversations with people about whether or not they, or whether or not somebody they know or somebody they love, whether or not they're planning on coming back to church at all. When the COVID-19 restrictions are relaxed, or maybe even when those restrictions are gone, it seems like a number of people plan to never come back. For a lot of people watching from home on a Sunday morning or whenever you catch the video, it's become pretty convenient. And over time, we've been eroded a little bit to the point where people don't miss church. So I've been joking that maybe what we ought to do is have blackout services. You know, like they used to do with rider games when nobody was showing up. (laughs) So we like, you have to come on church on Sunday to Sunday, it's a blackout. Problem with that is, as a teacher, I'm easily replaced. There are a hundred guys that know way more than I do with tons more charisma that you can watch any given morning. You don't need me. We could black it out and people would go elsewhere. I have to confess to you 
that I didn't see this coming. I thought coming out of COVID-19, the church was going to be stronger than ever because we would know exactly what we were missing. That's what's been motivating me this whole time, to be honest. So call me naive, but I, do not, I did not think that Christian people would find the community of faith expendable. I didn't think that would happen. So here's my thought. Christians who believe that they do not need the church community probably have one of a couple things, maybe both things going on. Either, one, they do not understand the centrality of the community Christian of faith to their faith lives. They don't get why it's important. Or two, they've had bad experiences where this community really let them down and really came up short. Church hurt. So one, I think that we have fundamentally misunderstood what the church is. If the church is a place for us to go so that we can hear music and have a sermon, we have totally missed it. Man, that is the easiest thing not to go to on a Sunday morning if you can just get it all online. Do you want fries with that? Look at what God tells us the essentials are. They are teaching, they are fellowship, they are breaking bread, and they are communal prayers. The first believers were totally devoted to these things. They were committed. This was their faith practice. The truth is that any Christian who is not part of a community of faith is living exactly one quarter of a Christian life they're probably still getting the teaching. Teaching is easy to come by these days. But if you're not part of a community, you are spiritually starving yourself of fellowship, you are starving yourself of the shared meals, and you are starving yourself of communal prayer. And honestly, I don't know how long the human spirit can endure that kind of abuse and neglect. When Peter declared his gospel to the 3,000, he invited them to repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. How absurd would it have been for them to repent and be baptized, receive the Spirit, and all go home and stay there? You were baptized. When you were baptized, you were baptized into the kingdom of God. You received the mission of God. You have a purpose. You have something that you are called and you need to be a part of. And I understand. I I don't want to throw guilt where it is unnecessary that those people who are wary of COVID-19, those people who need to protect somebody they love or themselves, if you've decided not to rejoin us right now, God bless you. But I want to remind you that when this is over, when we're free again, this is your place. This is where you belong. When we look at those four things, can I just say that I love this calling as a church? You talk about something that's really not intimidating. I mean, can our church please be all about this? When, when we choose our new church name, can our slogan be teaching fellowship, food, and prayer? I would love food to be one of our purposes for why we exist. Yeah, we ate a potluck. (laughs) I wish, okay? I wish someone would have told me 
as a teenager that food is a core component of Christian life. That would have really spoke to me. (laughs) God has called us to be a church which cares for each other's needs, engages with the community, loves each other's company, and together we proclaim Jesus. And as we grow closer together, we're stronger and we grow closer to God. So again, please do not just settle for online teaching and live a quarter of your Christian life. Come and help us live out the fullness. We're still learning how to do it, and we need to do this together. And I get it. You know, we have things to overcome. I I was listening to another pastor, Josh White, talk about this, and he asked a good question, which made a lot of sense to me, maybe especially Rachel, right? Why is it on Sunday mornings our kids are always the worst? And I remember doing that to my mom. She tried to put a turtleneck on me for Sunday school. I threw the biggest tantrum of my life. Why? It's because it's a spiritual battle to be here. We don't come here unopposed. We're battling an enemy. He does not want us living a full Christian life. And our enemy has a lot of help from our culture. Our culture pushes individualism, self-reliance, impulsivity, suiting your appetites. As if any of that stuff was ever good for you. The message of our culture is, you do not need anyone else in order to be fulfilled. And then we throw up our hands and wonder as as a society why nobody ever seems to be fulfilled. So though we have buried this truth under thousands of traditions, misconceptions, compromises, it is still the truth. When you decided to follow Jesus, you committed yourself to the community of faith. It is non-negotiable. But remember, I guess that there's probably two reasons why people want to give up on the church. The first one we just talked about, they may not understand that it's important. But there's B, that the Christian communities failed them. That they have church hurt. Some of the best fastest growing, most successful churches today are founded with the mission of healing people who have been hurt by other churches. And that is so sad to me. When we look at the church in Acts, there is one thing that made this newborn church work. Because as we said, it looks totally unworkable. Thousands of people who speak a pile of different languages from all over the world, they're now spending every day together. How is that supposed to go? How would that world have, that church have survived one day without the Holy Spirit? It is the Holy Spirit which maintained their unity and their peace. It provided them with this beautiful sense of joy in the Lord and each other that we just read, that we just saw in this passage. So if you have been wounded by a church, I believe that it's quite likely that your church failed to obey the Holy Spirit. Your church failed to express the love and generosity we see in the passage today. It failed to make fellowship a core core part of its church practice. And I understand that these situations where we've been hurt by the church are really complicated, but the Holy Spirit did not seek to do you harm. It's a little sad, but a friend of mine, he likes to say that the church shoots its wounded. 
And what he means is, when the church meets people who are struggling, a church community can often see that person as a threat or a liability rather than an opportunity for God's love. And that's because God's love requires vulnerability. And we try to protect ourselves from vulnerability. That's the opposite of what we learned here today. A church that doesn't have time for people who need God is a spiritless church, bar none. But even if the people of that church, they shut out or they ignored the spirit, they tuned it out and they did you harm, you must know that Jesus has not failed you. It is the desire of Jesus to restore you. And the truth is that the perfect treatment for church hurt is exactly what we read about today. The perfect treatment for church hurt is a church which shares life together in love and generosity. The enemy wants you to believe that the church itself is the problem, but a spirit-filled, obedient, humble, loving church is the cure. And I'll be perfectly frank. I know some of the stories. I know people have been hurt here. Hagman and Knight Church, for all of those we have hurt or we have driven away, we must repent. Every look of judgment, every unkind word, every bitter old grudge, everything we've done to make people here feel insufficient or unwelcome, these sins are like burning coals on our heads. If we want to be a light in a community that we've been a part of for 117 years, and we have 117 years of relationships and baggage, we need to confess our wrongs. And Jesus is faithful to forgive, and he'll move us into a new chapter of our life together. We can break the power that these broken relationships have over this community. And so I want to say that if you're watching right now and you've happened upon this stream somehow, but you've been hurt here, forgive us. Help us to do this the right way. Help us learn. And if you're watching now and some other church has hurt you, I am sorry. Forgive the church. Don't hold the sins of some against the community of faith. And I believe you can join us and we can learn to do this right. So maybe I am naive. If we know that this community constitutes about three quarters of our Christian life, and if we can repent and turn from the patterns which have hurt people in the past, I think we can come out of this pandemic a much stronger church after all. Maybe I'm naive or maybe I'm right. Like all of the teaching of the apostles, this all centers on Jesus. Jesus loves us. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love is perfect, that he accepted us at our lowest. And so the scriptures say, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Love is godliness. Living in that love, the newborn church had the favor of all people. God added to the church daily those who were being saved. God was adding them to a community which loved to be together. They were generous, they were prayerful, they were joyful. 
So then let's ask, what is the Holy Spirit telling us about our future? Amen. Please join me in prayer. God, we pray for humility, humility now from the bottom of our hearts. Those in Christ are not condemned, and none of this is condemnation, but God, let us see where we have fallen short of this standard of a community of love, and in your Holy Spirit, which is the only thing which can accomplish this, form us into a community of generosity and love. We pray, God, that we would be gracious to people, and that when wounded people come into our doors, they would find a place of care and of gentleness. And we pray, God, for all of those watching now who have been hurt by the church, any church. Holy Spirit, we pray even now that you would be unraveling the lies of the, enemies in their, of the enemy in their hearts, which makes them believe that this body, this calling, this mission was the problem. And God, we pray that they would find the cure, that they would find a community which loves them and builds them up in strength of faith. God, on our own, by our own strength, we cannot become a stronger, better community, but by your spirit, it is absolutely possible. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, let this be less about us and more about you. And let us come out of this pandemic stronger and closer. Let us take greater joy in the meals we have together. Let us take greater interest in our lives and make time to spend together in love. And let us always continue to teach the teaching of the apostles and continue to lift up praise and prayer and seek your will. God, we are humbled by this calling, but we know it is possible. You have proved it. And so do it in us. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.